welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. If we win on November 8th, we are going to drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. We're draining... It's now two and a half years since the property magnate Donald Trump entered the White House, having pulled off an improbable election victory for the Republican Party over his Democratic rival Hillary Clinton. The billionaire businessman promised a disruptive presidency that would put the political establishment on the back foot, and he certainly has delivered that, though how much progress he has made on his specific campaign priorities is a matter of debate. Now with the next presidential election just over 16 months away, focus is already turning to whether the Democrats can identify the right candidate to ensure that the Trump presidency does not survive into a second term. Our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, has had a ringside view of this unorthodox White House administration for the past two and a half years, and she'll be reporting over the next 18 months on what's already shaping up to be a fascinating race to the White House. I'm pleased to say that Suzanne is on a brief visit home and joins me now in studio. Suzanne, welcome home. Good to be here, Chris. I said there that the the race to the White House is already fascinating, and I think it is because there are so many Democratic candidates in the field, and also because that party has such a critical decision to make, both in terms of what candidate it should select to to challenge Donald Trump and who that candidate should be. Now, you were in Florida last week for the first debates among the Democratic Party candidates. What were your big takeaways from those debates? Well, it was a tale of, of two events, really, last week. This was the first Democratic primary debate of the season. We're still 17 months out from the uh, the general election next November. Um, but so far, as you said, more than 20 candidates have announced their intention to run for the nomination. So in, in a way, it kind of mirrors what happened the last time around for the Republicans when Donald Trump was one of many uh, looking for their party's nomination. So the way it was uh, organised by the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, was that they held a first debate over two nights in Miami and uh, 10 candidates were on first night, 10 were on the second night. Uh, so not everyone qualified beyond the debate. Most did, 20 out of about 25. And the first night was pretty standard, uh, pretty pedestrian. The, the candidates were more distinctive for what kept them in common, really, than anything that kind of stood, allowed somebody to stand out. Elizabeth Warren was the biggest heavy hitter going into that debate, and she, she did quite well, and she still emerged as a kind of more authoritative figure. But on the second night, the way it fell, it was just a chosen at random, but there were four, I think, of the five top polling candidates were on on the second night. And this really ended up being a really quite dramatic event. It was a two-hour debate, as was the first night. And during that time, all eyes were always going to be on Joe Biden. Since he announced he is entering the race back in April, he has been the front runner in virtually all polls. That's among Democrats and among the country as a whole. Uh, so he's really the one uh, to watch last night on, on Thursday night. And there was an expectation or discussion about how far people within his own party, his, his rivals for the nominee, but they're still within his party, would attack him. And really what happened was that Joe Biden really floundered in this debate and Kamala Harris, the senator from California, who's been doing pretty well. She hasn't been in great in the polls, but she's a very strong candidate. Where was that question when the Republicans and Donald Trump passed a tax bill that benefits the top 1% and the biggest corporations in this country? She really outperformed and she turned during the debate uh, and took on Joe Biden about previous comments on race. It was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but 
You also worked with them to oppose busing. Now, this led to a very tense but very kind of captivating four minutes or so interaction between the two where Kamala Harris completely commanded uh, the stage and completely commanded the that moment. Well, there I did was a failure of, of states to, to integrate no, public schools in America. I was part of the second the, class to integrate. Uh, but what was worrying from Joe Biden's point of view and from his campaign's point of view is that Joe Biden was not able to answer the criticisms that were levelled at him. And, you know, he would have known that this was an issue. It had been covered in the media. Uh, and yet he didn't really have a response when it was put to him. And I think secondly for Joe Biden, during this campaign so far, there's been a debate about the very quite nebulous concept of electability. I've seen this myself with people I've spoken to. They've talked about, look, Joe Biden is the man who can beat Trump. He's the most electable for everyone, so I'm going to vote for him. Worryingly for Joe Biden... Looking at him on stage on Thursday night, people, I think, may have felt that, look, if he's not able to deal with Kamala Harris interrogating him, how is he going to deal one-on-one when it comes to facing Donald Trump? Because that's what's going to happen in the months before the election. So I think his campaign now could be in difficulty. And uh, this has really got things, the ball rolling on this debate. has made it a lot more exciting, a lot more dramatic and a lot more to play for now that Joe Biden now underperformed to such an extent on Thursday. And is it clear yet, Suzanne, how much damage uh, mm. Kamala Harris might have done to Joe Biden's campaign? Or do we have to wait maybe now for the next kind of yeah. polls to come it, out? It's a good question, Chris, because one of the problems, of course, is that, and this is a perennial problem for Democrats. OK, Kamala Harris did very well. You know, Now a lot of energy behind her. Her fundraising numbers went up straight after the debate. But, you know, what about the ordinary voter around the country looking at Joe Biden? You know, maybe they didn't like the idea of Kamala Harris taking him on so strongly on race. Joe Biden had a very strong following uh, among African-American voters. That's one of his big advantages here as a nominee going into this uh, election next year. And senior figures within that community like Jesse Jackson are still standing by Joe Biden. And, you know, that carries a lot of weight. But, you know, and you're right in that it, it's going to matter how this played out uh, among among the public. Now, there was only polls are beginning to come out now. There was a CNN poll uh, that was published after the debate. And this showed the race tightening quite a lot. It showed that his lead in the field has shrank now um, to five points. Now, it's not by much, but it still shows that, that, that Harris, for example, did get a lot more support after this. Now, so did Elizabeth Warren. She did very well after the other night. And Bernie Sanders, who, you know, was okay. He didn't outperform. Um, He was maybe disappointing in terms of his performance to some of his supporters. He's still doing quite well. So I do think that we are seeing with the early polls that there has been a negative effect on Joe Biden since that debate. So this is is going to be the problem now for his campaign. Can they stem these losses? Uh, There's another debate at the end of July. So this is going to be a lot more now to play for. You know, how is he going to come back out fighting? Is he going to have a different strategy in this debate? Because I think in terms of watching it on stage, you know, this was a candidate... Joe Biden has kind of been running on the Uncle Joe platform. I'm the man you can trust, safe pay, pair of hands. Uh, I was in the White House for eight years, albeit as uh, vice president. And in a certain ex- to a certain extent, I think he tried to stay above the fray during the debate, not get into the weeds, you know, almost try and play the statesman-like role, let the others bat it out, and I'm kind of above that. But I think that backfired to an extent, and he looked, A, maybe a little too arrogant, B, that he didn't really have a command of the detail that you need, and see, wasn't able to get into the actual substance of the argument with Kamala Harris. Uh, and at one stage during the debate, for example, he stopped and said, my time is up. 
And, you know, everyone else is talking over it, trying to talk, talk, talk and get their moment in the sun. But I think that's said a lot metaphorically about where his his position is now uh, currently in the debate. This is always the front runner's dilemma, though, isn't it? And we've seen the same with the, uh, Boris Johnson, the Conservative Party, you know, leadership race, where he tried for the first three or four days of the campaign to say nothing and to keep yes, yeah. out of the fray. But um, And of course, the people who are who are trying to catch up are the ones who are going to make most noise. Exactly. They all want to stand out. And actually, that analogy is, is a good one with the Conservative race, because in another way, it's very like it, because just as in the Conservative race, it's a small group of people who pick the leader, and yet Boris Johnson will be the prime minister for the whole country. Similarly, it's going to be the Democrats who pick their candidate. But then the big challenge is that that candidate has to be the person who stands against Donald Trump in the general election more generally. So you've got this tension all the time between what the party faithful want and then what, what the country needs, arguably, and what will go down well with supporters across the community. Uh, so that's kind of the conundrum that the Democrats and every party always face. But it's it's uh, because it could, you know, significantly, I think Republicans were quite happy with how these debates went because a lot. I mean, it's it's quite general point, but most of the candidates, the twenty that were on stage on Wednesday and Thursday night last, were moving to the left in terms of the agenda, uh, be it on health care, uh, immigration. And I think this has been embraced by a lot of Republicans. Uh, Kellyanne Conway, for example, the, the the president's advisor, she tweeted a reference to a New York Times front page article that I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but something about, oh, dem- Democrats debating how far left they need to go. And they this is manna from heaven for Republicans who are trying to paint Democrats as a socialist party. So the more socialist, the more left wing they are, the happier the Republicans are because they can paint them. Then, you know, if you vote for a Democrat, you're going to be living in Venezuela. And, and yeah. that cuts to the heart, isn't it, of another issue? I mean, you've mentioned some of the personalities there, but the, the question of the type of candidate they should select, that, that's critical, isn't it? Like, do they go yeah. for somebody in the centre or maybe somebody on the left who might energise the party base a bit yeah, more? Yeah, so this is the central, you're right, the central question for the party now in the next um, few months is what kind of candidate they, do they want? Mo, Joe Biden is a centrist, and I mean, I think it's fair to say that. Um, and he has been arguing that this is what's needed. And he's got a good point here that, you know, Donald Trump ultimately won the election because a lot of swing states uh, voted for Donald Trump. And within those states, like the Rust Belt states, like Michigan, Wisconsin, these were voters who traditionally would have voted Democrat and then, you know, had their head turned by Donald Trump. If the Democrats want to win those heads back, someone like Joe Biden is the man. He's uh, puts himself out there as the Uncle Joe, you know, knows the working man. He was born in Pennsylvania. He always reminds everyone of this. Um, And he feels he can connect with voters. And I myself have seen that. One example, I was in St. Louis, Missouri last year before the midterm elections. And I went to a diner and talked to these guys, you know, in their late 50s. And they had worked, some of them, in the brewery business. Some of them were truck drivers. And it was a classic swing voter. They had all voted Democrat all their life, union men, but had voted for Donald Trump. Now, some of that was because they didn't like Hillary Clinton. Some of that could have been sexism. Who knows? But I remember asking them about Joe Biden. And they said, yeah, we like Joe. So that kind of voter is going to go for Joe Biden. The pro- but the argument on the other side is, and I think Donald Trump has changed the debate because now people feel like Democrats don't have the luxury to vote ideologically. They just want someone who's going to vote Donald Trump or beat Donald Trump. So I think the dynamic and the reason you vote is totally different in the Trump era. Now, the argument on the other side is that if you have a high energy, really motivating candidate like Kamala Harris, like in the vein of a Barack Obama, well, then you will get more of your own people out to vote. 
And that is a good point because one of the problems with Hillary is that she didn't motivate a lot of people or some Democrats just didn't bother voting because they didn't like her. If you have a candidate like Kamala who's going to motivate the Hispanic vote in particular um, and also the African-American vote, you know, maybe you, you one would need to look at the figures here, but a big enough turnout there would override the working class white men in, in, in Michigan uh, who were crucial the last time. So, you know, this is, a, this is a huge question for Democrats. You know, what kind of candidate do they need to run? Because, um, you know, Donald Trump, as I said, just won this thing marginally in 2016 in a key state. So they need to focus on how to win those voters back. Now, it's probably a bit of a cliche to say it, but it's true nonetheless that the, whichever candidate is selected, the party will need them to kind of get behind that candidate in a united mm. way. And despite the different factions within the party and, you know, the influx of new members of Congress from the left after the midterm elections, the party was maintaining really quite a united front in Congress mm. right up to last week. And then mm. suddenly we had this split between Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer yeah. on an immigration issue. What, what, what actually happened yeah. there? How serious a, a rift do you think That's, has developed there? Yeah, it's a good point. And that was about this immigration, this extra funding package. And Nancy Pelosi basically gave caved in in the end and said, we're not going to demand changes because she argued the situation at the border with children was so so acute that they just were going to agree it. But it was, a, it was um, you're right, a very unusual moment um, in US politics at the moment where Nancy Pelosi kind of stood down on something. Uh, she has done a good job so far in keeping her caucus together, keeping the Democrats on the same page. This is one of the, it's a broader issue that we could talk about another time, but one of the, one of the, one of the characteristics of Republican Party versus Democrats is the Republic, Republican Party is much more homogenous as a group. You know, you have more people who vote ideologically and so the Democrat is a bigger church. So you've got a bit of everything in there. Some people vote because of social reasons, some economic reasons. And these, as you say, th- this kind of structural, um, you know, difference within the party is something that's beginning to manifest itself again. You know, we saw it with the Bernie versus Hillary, you know, row that consumed the party last time around. So you're right, Nancy Pelosi has been trying to keep the more left-wing elements together, but they seem to be breaking ranks a bit. So this could be a problem. This will probably be exploited by um, Republicans. In saying that, and you're right, they they they, they need to keep a, a united front together. And I think they are scared about what happened the last time. Hillary Clinton herself has essentially accused Bernie Sanders uh, of sabotaging her election and, and arguing. And she's kind of got a bit of a point here that perhaps... You know, he gave all this fodder to Donald Trump before he even got started on Hillary Clinton. So you're right in that the, dam- the Democrats could do a lot of damage to each other at this point. Um, and it was gloves off the other night. But, you know, even with Kamala Harris attacking Joe Biden, she was careful to say, look, I know you're not a racist person. You know, and I think whoever they do pick, there will be less antagonism than the last time. Bernie Sanders was pretty... Everyone, I think, was watching for Bernie Sanders. They thought he would be the person to take on Joe Biden, not Kamala Harris. But the fact that he didn't could suggest that someone like him will come behind Joe Biden. But he could have been aping people like Ted Cruz the last time who were worried about alienating Trump supporters during the debate So they, so at the primary stage. So they were reluctant to criticise Donald Trump. Joe, uh, Bernie Sanders might have been doing that saying, hang on, well, some of my report- supporters actually like Joe Biden, so I need to be careful here. But I think they have learned their lesson. But you're right, it's a very dangerous uh, position to be in for the Democratic Party because if they start dividing, well, then this will be used against them in, in the debate proper. Now, to turn down to, to Donald Trump, he officially launched his own re-election campaign in Florida last month, and he did so in his usual ebullient manner in front of a, an appreciative audience. I stand before you to officially launch my campaign for a second term as President of the United States. Thank you. By the way, that is a lot 
of fake news back there. That's a lot. That's a lot. Many times I said we would drain the swamp, and that's exactly what we're doing right now. We're draining the swamp. Suzanne, you arrived in Washington at, at pretty much the same time as Donald yeah. Trump did. How do you think his president, presidency is going in terms of the promises he made and the priorities yeah. he set for himself? Um, well, I think that there's a couple of things. Two events, I think, have helped him in the last eight or so months. I think the midterm elections, look, you can cast them any way you want. Democrats did win control of the House of Representatives. But really, they, sh- they should have won control, control of that. That was kind of expected. But Donald Trump did pretty well. I think Republicans, the party generally, were really watching those elections to see, look, are we right to back this guy? You know, is he alienating voters? Is there going to be a Trump backlash? And there wasn't really in a major significant way. So I think that gave him a lot of authority for the second half of his presidency. And the second thing is, again, you can cast this a lot of ways, but the Mueller report, look, ultimately, the Mueller report, to quote Donald Trump saying it was a nothing burger, it wasn't quite that because, as we know, you know, there's a lot of issues around that. It was actually presented first by the Attorney General who put a spin on it. And actually, the picture was a lot more complex. But that early narrative about the Mueller report, that there was no collusion, really took hold in the public imagination. I think that's helped Donald Trump's legitimacy a lot among his supporters and among maybe middle ground Republicans who were never that comfortable with him. I think that's kind of allowed them to say, actually, he's not that bad. And look, there was no collusion. And, you know, it is okay to vote for this guy. So I think he's been strengthened uh, to an extent in terms of what he's done, he's, he has tr- followed through on a lot. He's pulled out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement. He's pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. All very, very serious kind of global issues that really, honestly, will have huge ramifications long after he is gone. Um, look, a lot, obviously, he hasn't delivered on. But trade, I think what he's doing, tra- I think most people would say, you mentioned Chuck Schumer, for example, earlier on, the top Democrat in the Senate. Chuck Schumer supports what Donald Trump is doing on trade, for example. He has said something on Twitter like, don't go soft on China. So I think what he's doing on China is kind of going down well with a lot of people. Now, look, there hasn't been much, you know, progress on this. It's stalled. It's still a lot of threats rather than following through. Um, and farmers, for example, are being um, affected negatively. But I, I was in Kansas last year talking to farmers, all Republican voters, and they're kind of willing to give him the benefit of the doubt at the moment because it hasn't been that bad in terms of the effect. Now, that could change. Donald Trump is very lucky here because the economy, I think there's figures out today saying that's the longest stretch ever for growth in the US economy. I think those figures are out this morning. So you see, that's that's cushioning everything. So he's quite lucky there. Um, so I think his supporters are pretty happy with how he's done. Uh, unfortunately, the world we're in, and I, I've seen this time and time and again, a lot of Trump supporters just want to be listened to. And actually, they don't really care that some of the things won't come through for them. I think they just want someone who they feel understands them and at least is listening and at least is trying. And you also hear again and again the line, he can't get anything through because the Democrats are stopping him in Congress. This is a, frankly, propaganda that's coming from the White House and reflected in Fox News a lot. And a lot of supporters you hear again and again have said that to me. Oh, it's the Democrats for the problem. They're stopping him doing what he wants. Poor Donald Trump. So I think that message he gets out is resonating with some of his supporters. The border wall is probably a good example of that. Yeah. Uh, he exactly. Actually, he hasn't built the wall, but yeah. he has stayed so focused on it, you know. Exactly. He certainly hasn't abandoned it either. Exactly. It? And there's bits being built and strengthened, and that's kind of enough to keep it on the back burner. And I think that's enough for people. And if he if he doesn't get it built, which he he won't probably, it'll be if because Congress stopped him. Yeah. Um, we heard there in that clip from Florida a characteristic attack on the media, the the journalists at the back of the 
um, the back of the room, if you like. Um, he has an obvious strategy to try to undermine the traditional media organizations and, and to essentially c- cut them out of the picture by you know, speaking directly to his followers on Twitter and so on. How do you think that strategy is working for him? Oh, well, look, very well. Um, there's a book which I have just uh, finished reading because someone, a Trump supporter, gave it to me um, by Mark Levin. He's a conservative host. He's a, he's a kind of thinking man, uh, Trump supporter, if you like. And he it's the top of the new bestseller list. And it's in the New York Times, ironically. And it's called Unfreedom of the Press. And it's basically an absolute diatribe on the media. And I just thought, well, A, it's ironic. It's the bestseller on the New York Times uh, list. Um, but B, it, it shows the appetite in America for this anti-media narrative. I think this is really resonating with people. Um, the media landscape is so divided in the U.S., you know, it's a whole other issue about the absence of a, of a strong public sector broadcast that, you know, the media people seek out media outlets that reflect their political beliefs. And it's very profitable for media companies. I think CNN had a profit of one billion in 2018, um, things that people could only dream of in Europe. Uh, so it's it's helping everyone to be as polarised as they possibly can. And that is absolutely, you know, resonating with voters again. It's all the fake news media, et cetera, et cetera. And I think if Donald Trump loses, this is what we'll hear again, that the media tried to, you know, take him down. Now, again, Mueller report, I think that's probably done a bit of damage as well. Um, that Mark Levin book talks about that and why that so much coverage was given to the idea of uh, collusion and actually the report, which it did, said there was no collusion. Now, it didn't exonerate Trump on obstruction of justice, but it said there was no collusion. So I think that has kind of undermined. Now, the media have come back fighting and said, hang on, hang on. We're, we cover U.S. politics and U.S. politics is consumed by this. And there is a special counsel investigation into president. This is big news. Of course, we're going to cover it. And with the Mueller report, we won. And now they want a do over. They want a do over. Let's do it again. Didn't work out too well. Let's do it again. They want a do-over. No president should ever have to go through this again. It is so bad. And what's happening now, as I speak to you, there's a new press secretary being appointed, Stephanie Grisham. She has been the uh, press secretary for the First Lady, Melania Trump, and is very much, you know, very vocal, very, very much a tough cookie has been taking quite an aggressive stance with media outlets in her role with Melania Trump. So it's interesting now she's moving over to the West Wing. What's she going to be like? Is Are there going to be press briefings? When I arrived there uh, two and a half years ago, there were press briefings most days. I used to go in, into them. Now they're not. Now, the White House would say, well, that's because Donald Trump speaks off the cuff. He gives essentially impromptu press conferences at the drop of a hat before he gets on Marine One helicopter. There's lots of issues with that. Number one being he, of course, literally orchestrates that and he just chooses to answer the questions he physically hears or chooses to hear at the line. So, you know, he completely drives that narrative. So it's not the same as having, you know, an opportunity to Q&A over and back question about a policy issue like immigration on the wall. So no one's getting to ask Donald Trump, what is, you know, what is the latest with the wall or whatever and the immigration package funding for that issue. Um so look, that, that's the problem with that. But it looks like there's going to be no change on that. But that's been a big sea change under the Trump administration, uh, that lack of the White House press briefing and Trump's more and more dominance of the media in terms of he's bypassing traditional media. He's speaking directly to people on Twitter or on TV. And um, that's now unfiltered. And he believes that's more effective than having a press secretary. Because Sarah Huckabee Sanders and her predecessor, Sean Spicer, were household names and, and faces mm. because of the daily press briefing. There's a danger yeah. that... 
Stephanie Grisham yeah. could finish out her time in this and job. Nobody, and, yeah, and nobody exactly. Would recognize her. Although I did is. see that she in North Korea over or, uh, over the weekend, she kind of got into an altercation. Allegedly, she had some bruises from North Korean Secret Service uh, up there. That there was issues about getting access for media up there. So it remains to be seen now what exactly happened there. But she she may make a bit of a splash. But yeah, she it's nothing like the job it used to be. Essentially, in, in your own last role as you're a European correspondent based based in Brussels, how different is it as a journalist? covering an administration that has such disdain for the media or perhaps the two roles are so different the comparison isn't really valid anyway I'm well, not sure there's, there's, a, there's some comparisons and, and to be fair to the United States I was surprised and I still am that there's quite good access for journalists you know I, I'm playing devil's advocate here but at the end of the day you know journalists go into the house where Donald Trump is living most days and are allowed to go in there it's it's pretty remarkable in one sense Um the, the the demise of the press briefing is negative. If you if I'd been talking, you know, eighteen months ago, I I was I was very uh, I was very pleasantly surprised at the access somebody like me can get. You know, we apply to go to the White House press briefings and to get accreditation for the week. There's a so, uh, Secret Service checking you, and then you can pretty much you know come up to the West Wing's front door and they let you in, and you're in the West Wing. So you know that is the whole First Amendment, pretty good. Um, access. Frankly, it was easier to get in. It's much easier to get into the press room in the US Congress and the Senate of the House than it was to get into Berlin in, in the EU. And that's not an exaggeration. So in one way, it's quite open to the media and still is. Um, and covering the debate last week in the spin room, you know, you've got all the candidates just walking around, you know, wanting to speak to the media, much more accessible than they would be in Brussels. Um, so I, I do think that. And, and other ways it's similar is uh, in Brussels, there's very much you know, centres of powers with the EU institutions. So there's the Commission, the Parliament and uh, the Council. And, you know, the dynamic between those three kind of uh, drives what happens in Brussels. And it's quite similar in Washington because you have the White House, Congress, uh, the State Department, the Pentagon. And at different times in history, they're more important, I think. And you're trying to navigate where is the power, where are their decisions happening. At the moment, it's all about the White House because the Trump presidency is so kind of full on, so dramatic, there's so much coming out there in terms of executive actions. Um, Congress less so, but I know from talking to other people over the years, Congress would be more, you know, second term Obama, presumably there wasn't that much happening, uh, relatively speaking, in terms of executive actions. Uh, it was all about his troubles with Congress and that's where things were happening. So it's quite, I find it quite similar as, an, as a, 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 you know, as centres of power, if you like. And then you have the paraphernalia of the diplomatic corps and journalists all congregated in these cities where so much power resides. Um, and it's just a magnet for international media and international diplomats too. One journalist Trump does speak to, of course, and so, some people believe he takes a lot of guidance from him when it comes to foreign policy is the Conservative commentator and Fox News presenter Tucker Carlson. That brings us to to perhaps the major issue of the day and not just for the US but for the world at large which is this escalating diplomatic crisis between the US and Iran. Now Mm. in a recent interview with Tucker Carlson, Trump explained why he pulled a decision at the last minute to authorise an airstrike on Iran in retaliation for its shooting down of a US drone. I said, how many people are going to die? And they said, at least 150. I said, I don't like that. I don't like it. And I stopped it. I built up a lot of great capital, and if something should happen, we're in a position to do far worse by not doing it. But hopefully we don't have to do anything. Iran now, since we terminated that horrible deal, which was a truly horrible deal, and, you know, you and I aren't so different in terms of fighting. We want to have peace. We want to build our roads and build our schools and build all the things we want to build. But we can't let Iran have 
a nuclear weapon. And I, you may even agree on that, because I know where you stand. The show's great. I watch it a lot. Uh, but you can't let Iran have a nuclear weapon. And you can't let certain other countries have nuclear weapons. Too devastating. So uh, they're having a lot of difficulty in their country right now. And hopefully at some point they'll come back and they'll say, we're going to make a deal. We'll see what happens. Where do you see this Iran crisis going, Suzanne? What's it going to take to get both sides off this escalatory path that they're Yeah, on? it's just, just listening to Donald Trump's quotes there with Tucker Carlson. I mean, there's so much wrong with what he's saying and, and so much that's misguided. Like the idea that Iran's going to sit around and make a deal. They just made a deal. That was the whole point in 2015. And then the US pulled out of that deal. So to try and get them back around the table and trust the United States again is is just going to be very, very difficult. Um, But it's a very precarious situation. You've got this deep irony that Donald Trump is trying to be the big deal maker with Kim Jong-un. Um, with a nuclear power and then at the very same time he's, he's pursuing a complete like he's, he's essentially pursuing a policy of appeasement with Kim Jong-un and then in with the Iran deal he actually walked away from a deal that was working that, that was successfully uh, curbing Iran's nuclear activity so you know there's no surprises that this this happened this way you know Iran was always going to respond it's under severe economic pressure and it, it's, it doesn't have any choice now but to and now we, we hear that it's breaching its limits on enrichment of uranium. Um, I think where it could get difficult for Donald Trump, and I think there are worries here in the next 17 months before the election, that some big foreign policy issue could blow up here, um, be it North Korea or more likely Iran. But we saw obviously how close it came uh, in the Gulf with the shooting down of that uh, drone um, and the fact that there was implications and it seems to have been backed up by the Americans that there was another plane with Americans on it that they could have shut down and didn't. But this is, you know, th- this is high stakes stuff. Um, I think the Europeans will have a key role here. They're desperately trying to keep Iran in the deal. Um, and they had set up this kind of special ver- purpose vehicle to allow um, trade to happen, a kind of channel uh, for companies and countries to trade with Iran and bypass uh the US sanctions, but, you know, that seems to be in difficulty now. And I think Iran, you know, if they start breaking with the EU and, and if they start pushing the EU, uh, well, then the EU may start breaking ranks with Iran, if you like. And that's, so I think that's going to have a lot of implications where we go next. Um, but the big fear would be military escalation and what Iran does next. You know, as I say, the economic effects are serious in Iran um, and the public disaffection now with the US and lack of trust means that you know, the Ayatollah would have more support than he might have to try to escalate tensions again. So look, it's a very, uh, very precarious situation. Um, obviously, the position of the Israelis and Saudis, the other allies in the region are key here. Saudis don't want it either. Um, but Israel have, has been kind of suspiciously quiet. Even John Bolton was with Benjamin Netanyahu around this time. And, you know, he was quite restrained of what he's saying. But I mean, I think that's something to watch there, the dynamic in the region. But with the situation, with the proxy wars going on in Yemen, you know, things are at a bit of a knife edge and I think it could very easily flare up. But the, what what will what Iran's next move, I think, in terms of any kind of military um, provocation? Because Donald Trump will have to respond if it's anything more serious. Uh, I think he surprised a lot of people. I mean, he said he doesn't want war, but, you know, there's just such such simplistic explanation that he just gave. He, he doesn't want war, but obviously he's provoked this country that you know, that's going to start building nuclear. So you, you can't ignore that. Um, so it's just absolute simplicity in, in thinking of these things that he doesn't want more and that means it's not going to happen. It's not the way the world works. And you mentioned there, and it's just, I mean, it's been, I suppose, the latest development, just the announcement by Iran in the last 24 hours that it has breached 
the limits on uranium mm. uranium enrichment that it signed up to in the 2015 nuclear deal. That um, And if you, of course, covered the story from the European perspective when yeah. this deal was signed. Um, that does place the European signatories to the deal in a very difficult position, doesn't it? Exactly, because the more that Iran breaks the terms of the deal, you know, that's, that's alienating the European Union. They're trying to get them to stick to the deal as much as possible. Um, so this Iranian enrichment confirmation, they threatened they would do this, they did, is pretty... Uh, Serious, but what was more serious, and we've spoken about it before in the podcast, that if they start enriching it to twenty percent, because that means they're getting closer to creating a bomb, that could happen within a year, we'll say. So it's kind of the next point is is really one to watch. That if they start enriching it to higher levels, that's the next thing they do. Well, then there's a serious situation then that they really are moving closer and closer to uh, creating a nuclear bomb. Um, and then, as you say, the problem is that the United Front then might start splitting between the EU and Iran. Uh, because, you know, it's it's so cynical, really, but blaming Iran for being provocative, of course, they're going to be provocative because the US has pulled out of the deal. And then the more provocative language that's used by the Ayatollah and, and people like Rouhani and Zarif, the foreign minister, you know, puts more pressure on the Europeans. They just want to keep thing, the lid on this and keep the, the Iranians in line. Now, the UN would be, you know, this, the General Assembly is on September. Iran don't have an official presence at the UN, but they, they, behind the scenes they do. And, like, that's an important forum as well. There could be developments there. It's kind of worth watching. It was a, Another thing that I think is quite interesting was that um, the, the straits there in the region, Donald Trump talked about the importance of keeping those open. But he, he made a valid point, actually, which was, I, I mean, with Donald, Donald Trump, there's a lot of exaggeration in this, but... He's right in that actually a lot of the oil that, that goes through that region is used by China and Asian countries. So they've got skin in the game here as well that if things destabilise in that region. He's got a good point there. So, you know, the economics of this are also very important, Iran's role as an oil producer and who they supply. Uh, that's a dynamic to watch in this as well as it develops. Well, Suzanne, I know that there's a lot we could talk about in terms of Trump and, and foreign policy and so on. But um, just to bring it back to, you know, the, the election cycle that is now beginning, um, what kind of are the next steps on, on both sides of the campaign and what, what's, the, what's in store in the next uh, for the next 18 months or so? Yeah, so as I say, it's still quite a way until the election in November 2020. So what to watch for, I suppose, the next few weeks and months, there will be a second Democratic debate now at the end of July in Detroit and there'll be another one in September. Um, and then things might go, well, famous last words, but they may go relatively quiet. The next big date then will be uh, early February when Iowa holds its caucus and then you're into primary season, Super Tuesday, and we will see very much at that point who is emerging as the major Democratic candidate. Now Republicans will pick their candidate which we presume and it's 99% likely it will be Donald Trump uh, I think in August next year. Um, But look it's still a lot to play for but I think the big thing to watch now will be the next few debates who starts dropping out and Joe Biden. I mean he's a front runner if he drops out who's going to get his support and Willie. People are saying uh, people I spoke to have said to me you know if he drops out it should it will probably be sooner rather than later. Um, you know, before everything really gets going next year. So I think that's really where things are going and the thing to watch in the next few months. Well, Suzanne, I look forward to further chats about these matters down the phone line, no doubt, over the next uh, weeks and months. Thanks a lot for coming in. That's all for this week. For more on this and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.